Hello everyone and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm Osman Mughal. Thank you very much for joining and I'm really excited today to be sharing with you a journey of a group of volunteers that are changing the lives of those living in refugee camps around the world. But before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you all for listening and sharing all our podcasts and for all the comments and your feedback. We really do appreciate it. Our vision and mission at Charity Chat is simple. It's to provide a platform to discuss several ideas and topics with experts within the charity sector and outside to help us better serve our sector and ultimately our beneficiaries. You can always get in touch with us at info at charitychat.org.uk if there's different topics that you want us to discuss or there's people that you want us to interview. As I mentioned, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. It's on the washing machine project. And I speak to its co-founder, Navjot Swahey. The washing machine project has a vision and it's a world where anyone has access to a washing solution that limits the burden of hand washing clothes. It might seem trivial to us, but in some of the most remote and vulnerable communities around the world, it can save time, money and resources. He and his team have recently travelled to refugee camps around the world to pilot this invention. In the podcast, we touch on many issues. We talk about his reasons behind starting such a project, which is a fascinating journey in itself. The process involved, how in a couple of years he's partnered with organisations such as Oxfam and the UNHCR, and the importance of having qualified and passionate team of volunteers who have made all of this possible in such a short space of time, and his future vision of the organisation. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hello Nav, how are you? Doing great, how are you as well? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today um, and to hear about the work that you're doing. And I'm really excited for our listeners to hear about the Washing Machine Project and all you've done um, in the last few years. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me, thank you for the invite. Brilliant. It's a great initiative. Thank you. And it's a small world, isn't it? Because we went to school, uh, we went to the same school and here we are a few miles from where we live and where we went to school discussing about projects and initiatives that we're so passionate about so it's certainly a small world Yeah, who knew that uh, two kids from Greenford High School could go and help the humanitarian world Exactly, exactly and, and so before we get into the podcast and talking about the washing machine project in a little bit more detail It'll be really good for our listeners to just get a little bit of an understanding about your background and your experience. Yeah, sure. Um, so my uh, background is engineering. Um, when I was a child, I was fascinated with how things work. Um, my father at the time, my father at the time was an engineer, uh, yeah. and so he uh, took me to air shows, and I was fascinated with these big objects right, right. flying in the sky. I would come home and go into the cupboard and take out the tools that we had and take apart appliances. I'd not really know how to put them back together. That really used to anger my mum and breaking appliances. But I was just curious of how things worked. Then I studied engineering at university. It seemed like a natural transition. <coughs> and so I always wanted to make the world a better place. I did lots of voluntary work in local charities throughout my childhood and growing up. So I had this passion for volunteering and helping people, I had the passion for engineering. I joined the Dyson graduate program, making next generation technology. About three years into my graduate program, I had this kind of 
urge to take a sabbatical and uh, you know apply my engineering skills, make making sure my engineering skills go further. And so I, I quit my job and volunteered for Engineering Barbados UK for one year in South India, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Yeah, of course. So did you move to um, India? Okay. I moved to India for one year, uh, making clean and efficient cook stoves. Um, so I think it's really important to use the skills that we have to, to good use. Uh, whether you're an engineer, or you're good at communications, or you're good at numbers, your your skills are needed in the world. That's that's really that's really interesting. That, and I think. Um, just fascinating that you had such a great job, um, a well-established uh, organisation, and yet you were still passionate about the role engineering can play in the world. And then you moved to India, which is not a small sacrifice, and you started up a project which is obviously helping many people as well. Um, so you know you said that you volunteered at local charities. That experience that you got volunteering, did that play a huge role in what you're doing now? Yeah, I think uh, the volunteers' mindset is quite an interesting and unique one. Uh, it's almost the selflessness that you have in a volunteer that's really important. Um, it attracts a certain type of person. Yes. Not just for your CV, but to really give back to, of course. to people. And I think. Once you do volunteer, the people around you have a similar mindset, so you almost attract the same people. And you become a network and you learn from each other the skills, experiences, etc. as well. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, some, of, some of my dearest friends are people that I've volunteered with in various different organisations. That's really good. And you share a similar goal and a passion. Absolutely, I couldn't have said it better myself. And so the project, we'll touch on the washing machine project, which is mainly in Iraq, if I understand correctly. But I just wanted to understand a little bit more about your work um, in the south of India. What was that project about? And in which areas and which were the type of beneficiaries that you were supporting? So yeah, it's an interesting problem. And engineers, we as engineers, we look at problems and trying to find solutions to them. So, you know, whether it's uh, creating an electric car or making the next best vacuum cleaner or making a missile, uh, you know, we're trying to come up with a solution to a problem. And, the reason why I took a sabbatical from my conventional engineering job is because as engineers we are programmed to just find the next job, uh, not really thinking about our impact. Uh, uh, as young engineers we, we go into that next job, we, we work for missile companies, car companies or vacuum cleaner companies. And really, just don't think much more of it. You know, it's a great name on the CV, and we're doing well. You know, so. <coughs> so I took the sabbatical, and I volunteered for an organisation called Practi, and Practi make uh, clean and efficient cooking stoves uh, for people who use solid fuel to make their, their food. People who can't afford gas or electricity. And it affects about 50% of the world's population. That's quite a large number. Yeah, it's huge. It's three and a half billion people in the world today that use fire to cook their food. It's problematic for a number of reasons, but the main reason is smoke emissions, deforestation, so foraging for wood, and also time consumption, so going further and further away from your home to find this wood. And it's a problem that mainly affects women and children around the world. So at Practi we were making affordable cook, cook stoves, so a cooking stove that was for 999 
rupees. So that's equivalent to ten pounds today. Uh, and that number wasn't plucked out of thin air. That number was uh, generated with research, uh, surveys done with our beneficiaries to understand the buying power uh, of a woman in South India. And it, we ascertained that anything more than a thousand rupees, then the beneficiary, the woman, would say no because she couldn't afford it. And she'd have to ask for permission from the breadwinner. And the breadwinner would most likely to say no as well, because it's a problem that doesn't affect him. Mm. Anything less than a 999 rupees, then the beneficiary would have the power to say yes. Mm. And so that's where we set our, our goal of pricing. And then in terms of technology, the, the cook stove was efficient by 50%, so it reduced the emissions by 50%, and it'd be cost efficient by 50% as well. So those were our targets. Uh, I set up a, a small factory in South India, and... Uh, and really what was that process like? Was that quite difficult to do that set up in the factory and all of the logistics around that, or yeah. was it relatively simple? It's, it's a, a different working culture, you know? and for me personally, I'm, Punjabi. Uh, I speak Hindi and Punjabi and I thought I'd be okay in India but in yes. South India it's a totally different country like it's yeah. different language, different food. It might as well be a different country. Uh, so here's a steep learning curve and moving to South India in the rural parts of South India I, I was living in a village called Kulupalaya Electricity was infrequent. Water was only switched on twice a day at 6 in the morning and 6 p.m. Uh, so the conditions weren't ideal. Yeah. And so the whole experience taught me that uh, these beneficiaries need smart innovation. You know? My next door neighbor was a lady called Divya. Um, she became a really good friend of mine. She was the only lady on the street in the village that spoke English. So she became uh, my translator as yes. well as a good friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was 31, a stay-at-home mum, married at the age of 16. Uh, and she spent hours and hours and hours on unpaid labour at home. And really arduous tasks. Um, like cooking and cleaning, cooking in an open fire, washing, hand washing her clothes up to 20 hours a week. Electricity was infrequent, so her son, Sugumar, seven years old, couldn't study for his exams in the evening because there was no light. So there'd be like times we'd have to provide a torch to them so they could study under torchlight um, and I would come home in the evenings and spend time with Divya outside the house catching up on life and she would complain about these day-to-day -to -day tasks and really taught me that you know uh, convenience shouldn't just be for middle-class rich people you know mm. convenience should be for everyone you know people like Divya need these types of things and it was such an eye-opening experience. This is a true example of innovation that you just had a nice friendship with your next door neighbour and you hear their problems and their concerns and their issues and you're able to put your skill set to good use and help people and I understand this is where the idea from for the washing machine project came from is that right? Correct yeah so I was working at Prakti setting up factories factory, uh, trying to make this clean and efficient cook stove on Monday we'd have an idea for a stove we'd, we'd draw it on a piece of paper yeah. we'd prototype it 
finish the prototype by Monday. On Tuesday, it would be in the field with the beneficiary. On Wednesday, it would be able to get feedback on how it is straight away. Right. So that kind of living lab prototyping, iterating design was really useful. Um, and it really taught me that staying close to the beneficiary and testing out with the beneficiary directly is really important. That feedback is invaluable. And then my time with Divya becoming a good friend of her, as an engineer, I automatically went to solve this time consumption and complaint of back pain and joint pain. So it was almost like one evening, this penny drop moment. You know, mm. A light bulb moment. Yeah, you know, this. Maybe I can make a washing machine for Divya. That's amazing. Maybe I can help her do this task. She used to like bend down on her hands and knees every single day, up to two hours a day. Scrubbing and cleaning and wringing out these pieces of cloth. Um, the interaction of soap, um, rashes on her hands. And I said to Vivian, I want to do this one. She said, yes, I'd love it. Uh, that's, that's where the idea was started. So what was the transition? Obviously you had this great idea that you wanted to build, which started with Divya, but now is moving a pace and it's being, and it's being put um, in refugee camps in Iraq. What was that transition like from having that idea in the first place and then using, I suppose, your engineer's mind, how can I put this into practice? What was that transition, that process like? Yeah, so I think with any sort of idea that you have, you need to do the research. Mm. Uh, it would be, be really detrimental to just continue that idea without doing the proper investigation. So I... I I set up a small survey, you know, this was um, a 20 question questionnaire that I would ask beneficiaries in the village about washing habits, just trying to understand how, how big the problem was. And then I did research online uh, about washing, hand washing clothes. It affects 70% of the world's population. So about 5.5 billion people in the world today uh, don't have access to an electron, electronic washing machine like you and I. They have much clothes. So the problem is huge. And then I found out that no one is working on this from a humanitarian or development perspective. There are hand washing machines out there, mm -hmm. but they're, they are working on it from an angle of green thinking and environmental thinking for the West. Right. So people who have money for the rich, people who choose to live off the grid rather than are forced to live off the grid. So when I found out there was a need, I thought, right, this is this is uh, this idea is a goal. You know? Yes. But then also recognizing that, that I can't do it by myself. And so forming the right team around me. And uh, I have to give a big shout out to the Washington Project team. Because without them, this wouldn't have been possible. I just had the idea. And how did you, what was the process like of collating that team? Because you had to have people that you could trust, that had the right skill set that were passionate about the cause and also a different a range of skill sets as well so how did you put that team together was it people that you knew from before or was it people that you were introduced to through your work in South India etc yeah like so many different contacts from uh, different networks um, and I learned from my time in practice, you know, that really grassroots social enterprise framework. Uh, I learned what's needed to make this idea into reality. So 
I needed, I knew that I needed, um, you know, engineers, communications, people who can do surveys, people who can work in programs. Um, so I, I knew that I needed those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. But also, I think above all, I needed passionate people that could get behind the story. And the story is that this lady, Divya, has skills and qualifications. She's not using them because she can't, she doesn't have the time. And it's the storytelling that's important because you, once you get behind the story, once you get behind the cause, I think the world is your oyster. And the washing machine project, as I understand it, tackles two key issues. Firstly, the immediate need in the household, but also reducing the time that is spent on washing, etc. So uh, women, young girls, mothers can spend more time focusing on other areas that they're passionate about or they're interested in, or even perhaps go and get work if they're able to. Is that, is that correct? Would that be a fair summary? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the, could you imagine giving back 10 to 20 hours a week to a lady? Like, what that person could do yeah. with that time? It's like one and a half, two working days, you know? Absolutely. And, and just if you think it from an economics point of view, yeah. if you deprive 50% of your potential workforce, women, if you deprive them the chance to you know, educate and get an education, go into employment, the productivity of the whole country naturally would decrease. So if you're able to provide a device like you have, which reduces the amount of time they're doing household tasks and spend more time to, you know, focusing on the education, focusing on other areas that they're interested in, that is likely to have collectively a bigger impact on the economics of the country and their society as well and that's probably one of the indirect advantages of a device like yours it's not only the washing machine it's the additional advantages that you have that lead from that yeah there's a saying that educate the girl you educate the world yes. um, and I believe that for for the world to progress, these kinds of really basic uh, problems yes. need to be solved. Absolutely. And I believe if you alleviate the burden of things like this, and, and people like Divya, then you know, imagine the potential of that village. And the impact, yeah, and the impact that is going to have on generations to come. If you look at Divya's children um, and even their children, if you look at that, there'll be a marked increase in terms of the opportunities that will be available to them if people like yourselves and others come together and are innovative and come up with solutions that can help their lives. So I think it's it's absolutely brilliant. And it's about giving back a choice, right? Yeah. So allowing people like uh, Divya to make a choice on what they want to do, yeah. rather than being forced to do. Uh, and people need this. Yes. You talk to you talk to uh, women uh, around the world in refugee camps. Uh, in the development context as well, in the humanitarian context. And they're open to this, they want this. It's up to us, yes. it's up to engineers, it's up to people with the right skill sets to innovate and provide these solutions yeah. in the best way they can. Absolutely. And just, just something that's come to mind is a man called Mohammed Yunus. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Yes. 
and he for for people that don't know I'll just explain a bit of a brief background so obviously he was born in Bangladesh and he had the idea of microcredit so he would lend a few rupees to women in the village <coughs> and he would ask them to come up with small little products um, either sewing or whatever their particular skill set was and then he would go out and sell them and that model of my microcredit has been so successful it's being implemented around the world and even in the states and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 because of it and it just reminds me of I watched a few of his talks on YouTube etc and he said when I was putting this idea out there I was criticized a lot people said this is almost laughable that something like this would ever work and yet it's been so successful and it's helped thousands if not millions of people around the world and it's such a simple idea and yet it's had such a transformational impact on the world but in particular women because like you said if you educate women in societies particularly in the east you're more likely to have more productive communities and productive communities make productive countries and i think that's it's i'm truly in awe of what you've achieved so far um and the fact that you're using your skill set uh, which is a niche skill set and it is a very difficult subject to do in the first place to use that skill set to help the people around the world and on my travels to refugee camps one thing that i've always put at the back of my mind is that i'm helping myself more than i'm helping the refugees and that it's our responsibility and our obligation to fulfill their rights and i sense coming from our discussion so far and we've discussed previously off the podcast is your passion and your mindset is very similar you don't go there thinking i'm going to do something you actually think let me help fulfill their rights and make the world a more equal place and a fairer place where justice can prevail and i think we need more people like you to use their skills so whatever it may be like economics engineering medicine you know whatever their potential skill set may be even if it's on the side and what they do volunteering to go out there and support causes like these Humanitarian context and refugee context is so interesting, right? So mm. these are these are people that were like you and me. Yes. They had everything. Yeah. They had uh, very fulfilling lives, and then one day they lost everything. Almost overnight, really. Someone comes in and just says, "No, you're not allowed to go home anymore. Your, your home is gone, and you have to move." And I think, honestly, for refugees, it's this is a temporary phase in their life, and it's up to us to help them through this phase, like anything we can do to do that. Absolutely. UNHCR director once told me. This is a very temporary moment in a refugee's life, and we're just trying to help them in their way. And that forever has stuck with me. And traveling to to Iraq, Lebanon, and Jordan, and going to that nine camps now in these areas has really taught me that. And it gives you a different perspective as well when you come back. And and not only different perspective but what you want to do with your career and the impact that you want to make and when you go out there you realize a little goes a long way at the same time and i think also like volunteers uh, think that uh, we need to travel to the ends of the earth to make yeah. impact but actually There's refugees family in this country that need your help, you know. There's food banks that need need help. You don't need to travel to refugee camps to make an impact, you know. Yeah. 
you know, a little really goes a long way. Absolutely. And can you please just explain a little bit about your trips to these refugee camps? <coughs> you had the idea when you were in the south of India. You did research, iterations of the device. And then you went to refugee camps. What did you gain from that experience? First of all, you've touched on it a little bit. But how did you say, how can I roll this out to refugee camps across the world? And also I understand that you've got very good relationships and partnerships with Oxfam, the UNHCR and other organisations, yeah. which is a tremendous feat in such a short period of time. How was that process like? Yeah, so um, something happened to me personally in, in India, which was that uh, I found my calling in terms of like what I wanted to do in life. And it was basically to create products or create solutions for people that really need them. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know? um, and I will work every day to try and make this possible. Um, but also I needed to understand the content. So I came back home, back to the UK, and then I took up a master's. Uh, so right now I'm studying a master's at Bath University. It's a long distance master's. It's in humanitarianism, conflict and development. Right. Uh, and it's incredible. I would recommend everyone to take up this master's. It changed my life. It gave me access to so many different resources, people, lecturers, academic writing. Uh, and it accelerated my learning in the, in the, in the industry. Um, and I was lucky enough to come back and then become a director of Engineers Without Borders UK. So now I sit on the board of EWB UK, um, advising on their strategy. I also work full-time at Jaguar Land Rover. So lots of different activities, lots of different networks. Um, and that's what... I honestly believe in my life it's always about connections, building, building connections through conversation uh, and kind of like-mindedness. And talking to people about the idea I have, you know, forming this team, creating uh, a movement on the story. And so, so with the engineering team that we had, uh, I approached I approached my, my classmates at university and I said, I have this idea, this is our prototype, where can I take it? Uh, and one of my good friends on the course is the head of security uh, for a big NGO in Iraq. He said, come out to Iraq and showcase this uh, prototype and just take it to IDP camps in Rock and see how it goes. So yep. me and Alex, the lead engineer of the washing project at the time, had this washing machine on our back uh, on the way to Iraq and we interviewed 79 families across five days in five camps. Uh, and the feedback was really good. Uh, the, uh, the need was there and uh, people wanted it. We had several meetings with Oxfam and the Iraq Innovation Lab. It's a part of an organization called the Response Innovation Lab who have labs all over the world okay. that help innovation in the humanitarian field, which is exactly what we're trying to do. And they've been incredible. Uh, they funded us for a pilot of 50. Um, at this moment, so at this moment in time, there are 50 washing machines travelling to Kurdish Iraq to start a pilot in Mosul. I travelled to Iraq on Friday, fingers crossed. And we had meetings with uh, the IOM. Um, so the IOM is the 
International Organization for Migration. Correct. Yes. Uh, and it was just introductions. Hey, we're doing this. Do you have any ideas? We're new to this. Please help us. And the adoption and the openness for having a meeting is great. And I think the industry needs, or the sector needs innovation. So they were open to innovation. Um, and then to be honest, like the other countries, Lebanon and Jordan, I just, I said I'm gonna go and meet people. We just turned up at the UNHCR, knocked on their door and said, we have this innovation, can you let us in, we wanna show you. And then found myself in front of the director of UNHCR like that. In, in, uh, in the Hindi culture, there's a, there's a saying in Hindi, and it's Jugar, uh, which is basically means problem solving with limited resources. And I think we just Jugar our way through <laughs> everything, you know? Yeah. Uh, but as we grow bigger and we have these formal partnerships in place, we're learning more and more and having the right documentations and you know, making sure that we're reporting in a certain way. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, but not losing that spirit of, you know, nothing is impossible. And you always need to remember why you began in the first place, even as you grow bigger and bigger. Yeah, making making a machine for Divya. Yeah. So we're making a manual, off-the-grid washing machine. Mm. And it started with Divya, and that's why we named it the Divya. And then that's a beautiful name for it as well. Yeah. Uh, never forget your roots mm. and how you started. And always keep the beneficiary in mind. In mind, at the centre of everything they do. What would the beneficiary? What would the beneficiary? What would the beneficiary? Um, and and that has to be every decision you make as an organisation. Like you said, as you're growing and growing, yeah. the end result is what impact will this have on the beneficiary? And that's got to be the key thing. Beneficiary yeah. also always has to be at the front of the mind within the organisation, the people that work for the organisation. Absolutely, and if you lose sight of the beneficiary, then most of all, you're just filling in numbers and reporting for work. Yeah. There's humans at the end of your work. Something that's really interesting me about this project is you went out to the different camps and you spoke to the beneficiaries first hand. Yeah, so you accelerated your process yeah. in terms of developing this device because there are many people in the world that have wonderful ideas about how they can help the most vulnerable in our society and in our world. But that coupled with the expertise and the skill, I think is a real challenge. There may be others that have great ideas, but putting that into practice getting that signed off by reputable organisations that have been established for centuries and being able to have them almost endorse your product particularly at a pilot stage which is really difficult because I work in fundraising and I know how difficult getting funding for pilot projects is and all that coming together as a package I think is what's really unique about projects like yours that you're able to use an initial idea but not just let that idea fester. You went straight into action, you spoke to the beneficiaries, then you've got great partnerships. So that means when you've got partnerships with Oxfam, with the IOM, with other organizations, getting funding from, potential match funding from other organizations later on as you grow, will be a lot easier than if you didn't have those partnerships because the likes of Oxfam and other organizations that are funding this project and that are helping you and advising you is clearly going to be a benefit to you and the organisation and ultimately beneficiaries. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think these agencies appreciated that this was a self-funded project. Uh, so we've been going for about a year and a half now. And the first year and three months was self-funded. Yeah. From my pocket. Yeah. And I think they appreciate that. Yeah. Um, we, 
we went out to Iraq, to Jordan, to Lebanon on our own backs. Um, and the feedback that you got from the different camps, so you said you went to Iraq and Lebanon, what differences did you see within those camps? Yeah. And in terms of the feedback, but also the environment? Sure. So, at the Washing Machine Project, we, we call it a data-centered approach. So, you, you hit the nail on the head at the start, you said that. We went to the beneficiaries first. And I think that's so important with everything they do. Identify the problem with the source, right? So we went direct to the venture to talk to them. Yeah. We generated loads of data and we took out loads of storylines. So the context is different, you know? Yes. So for example, in Kurdish Iraq, we were interviewing Yazidis. Yazidis have a holy, an auspicious day on Wednesdays for them. But this is what we found where washing doesn't occur. Um, we found that Yazidis have bigger families. Average size is 13, 14. You know, that affects drum capacity, the, the size of the washing machine. The different camps between Sunni and Shia and Arab and Yazidi and Kurdish, you know, and, and, and how that differs from person to person, camp to camp, and the conditions of the camp themselves. Mm -hmm. Some camps have water that's piped straight to the beneficiary's tent. Some have a communal area. Some have water being trucked in. How does that affect how the beneficiary uses water? Um, in uh, Lebanon, when I went uh, to the Bekaa Valley, 15 minutes away from the Syrian border, uh, I found that Beneficiaries were heating up water in two-litre uh, soda bottles on the top of their roofs, warming up this water in their tank. And those kinds of smart things you know, that you pick up in, in the different visits. <laughs> so you mentioned that the washing machine project is off the grid. How does that work? Because I'm sure people will be interested without giving away the secrets. How does that work? Because to me, that seems quite revolutionary and quite difficult to do. Because as you've already mentioned, these camps don't have electricity or they don't have electricity for the whole day. So you needed to adapt the device for it in order for it to work. How does it work? So the washing machine project um, pilot in Iraq is centered around a prototype called Divya. The Divya prototype is um, it's a 60 meter drum that has a 5 to 7 kg capacity. It requires 20 litres of water and within 20 minutes your washing is done. So to compare that to what is happening right now, a beneficiary would typically use 40 litres for 5 kgs of clothes and would spend up to 2 hours. So we believe we created, or we have created, uh, a solution that targets all of these problems. Another problem is that the beneficiary bends down on their hands and knees with uh, arch back, interaction with the detail and soap and detergent. And it causes muscle pain as well. So the washing machine that we've created, you stand up, you use a handle uh, in a hand cranked fashion and it spins um, using momentum. Um, there is a, a, a baffle uh, inside that basically lifts up the pieces of cloth yep. 
and then chucks them back down again to mimic that agitation and eating up the cloth that we normally would do by the hand. If you look at the washing machine at home, it has the same technology. That's really interesting. Also, there's nothing revolutionary about what do. Um, people are doing this right now, but they're not doing it for the humanitarian or development context. The washing solutions that are out there right now are for the West, and they're priced for the West. These are $300 manual washing machines. You can buy a, an electric washing machine for $100. Yeah. Uh, so our goal is to build a $30 manual washing machine for the development and humanitarian context. And that's our goal. To make it affordable, portable, light, accessible, and to alleviate this burden for these people. And you mentioned that prototypes are flying out there as we speak, and you'll be going to Iraq on Friday, fingers crossed. What feedback have you got so far? Because you mentioned that you've been speaking with beneficiaries um, over the course of the last year, year and a half. What immediate feedback have you got that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I, I shared that, that the Zizi families are, are massive. Mm. And so their, their feedback is that they want the biggest drum to be possible. Uh, half of the Yazidi family is under five. So lots of clothes for babies that need to be washed every single day. So ease of use and big drum capacity was one of the main feedbacks. Um, making sure that the opening of the washing machine was big so the lid could be easily taken in and out clothes things like that. Uh, also making sure that it's light so that they, they don't have to pick it up or they can pick it up with ease. Um, making sure that it's in a way that they don't have to bend down because that was one of the biggest companies. So those are the types of things that we got for. And from what I hear, <coughs> it's all it's much safer and much easier to use, which as you've already mentioned, helps them as individuals in a health aspect as well, because they're not bending down or bending over with arch backs and things like that as well. So obviously it's helping in numerous ways. Yeah, this project has several ways I can help the beneficiaries. It's a really intersectional approach to looking at aid or programming. I mean the direct, the direct uh, benefit is the the beneficiary isn't spending as much time hand washing clothes, isn't or limiting um, the interaction with soap, not bending down in an arch back fashion, so limiting that that burden as well. Um, but also, this could be a livelihood project as well. So, for us as engineers, we can make this bigger so that you can open up a laundry and wash other people's clothes. That's something that we can do. We can, and we also look to manufacture locally to avoid logistics costs. So, there's a livelihood aspect of that, you know, empowering local workforce. So that's something that we're looking into as well. And therefore you're helping the community as well and the society because that will generate jobs. Absolutely. That's, what's the point? Uh, a bunch of people from the UK making these washing machines. So equally something in an arc could do that. You know? yeah. And also there's a sustainability aspect to that as well because you're creating jobs you're creating income it's so much more important for the society to feel that they're earning their own money and they're not always accepting donations or support from other countries or other people I think that's really important because when I've traveled to see refugees in Jordan and I'll be going to Iraq later this year the sense that I get is that they don't want help 
they have a lot of self-respect and dignity and they want to earn with their own hands they just need the opportunity yeah. and your project provides them with that opportunity we went to different camps so we went to Zakhari refugee camp yeah, you went to Zatari. Yeah, but to Zatari refugee camp. We also went to other camps that so were. Did you go to Azraq? Sorry? Did you go to Azraq? No, we didn't go there. Um, but we went to Al Mafraq, Jarash, uh, Zatari, um, and a few others. So the one that I went to in April 2018 went a lot closer to the Syria border, where there is a lot of smaller camps and they're populated by only 80 to 100 people yeah. and the the people that are there are very elderly and they don't from the sense that I got they didn't have the opportunity to go to Zathri refugee camp whereas the one in Zathri are younger in, in age obviously the conditions are very difficult to see and I imagine obviously very difficult to live in but like you mentioned earlier about the different camps within the same area even they, they differ enormously and the needs differ enormously and that must have been one of the challenges of your project getting it set up that you needed something to cater to everybody and be useful for everybody at the yeah. same time yeah that's true it's, i think there's a term in the humanitarian sector like five-star refugee camps Relative, right? yes. Some refugee camps are really good, some refugee camps are really bad. And then it's about gauging the need, right? But I couldn't agree more in terms of um, the beneficiaries that I've spoken to. They yeah, don't want a handout, you know? No, never. They, they just want the opportunity. Yeah. And that's something that's really, really surprised me because if I was in that similar position, and obviously it's really difficult sitting here comfortably in a coffee shop in the west to think that but if i was in a similar position and i had a family to feed and i had an operation to find that one of my sons for example needed an operation i don't know whether i would say the same thing <coughs> because when i went to the refugee camp just a couple of months ago and i spoke to syrian refugees they said to us i don't need anything all i need is help fund my son's eye operation otherwise he'll go blind in a couple of months and that's all they they didn't talk to us about food they didn't talk to us about their own needs nothing and that's something that surprised me in a way because I don't think that I would have made the same choice being perfectly honest and I was really inspired and by their resilience <coughs> and about that they don't want handouts because like you mentioned earlier you said it perfectly they'd come from a life where they had everything you know if you I've, I've spoken to Syrian refugees um, that have settled in in the UK and I've obviously traveled abroad and I've watched a few films like for summer the cave in cinemas and the sense that I get is they don't want a handout they want an opportunity to get their lives back on track and the amazing thing about projects and projects like yours is it deals with an immediate need but the the importance of that is that it creates jobs it creates you know self-respect dignity a job it allows them to be self-sustainable it allows them to learn new skills as well at the same time so i think that's an important part where i think a lot of charities need to go because even if you look at the macro sense where governments have been given aid to certain countries for a long period of time. In many research studies that hasn't shown to be working, but it's more effective where you try to implement a solution that can be self-sustaining. Sustainability is key, right? Yeah. Oh, I had just this idea, uh, this thought. So I'm, I'm doing my dissertation this year. Okay. Um, and I found that in my interactions with agencies, the immediate needs are the only things that are being thought about. So water, shelter, sanitation, hygiene. But no one is thinking about long-term solutions. Yes. <coughs> I mean, refugee camps are set up as temporary solutions, but unfortunately the average age of a 
refugee camp right now is like 20 years. So what comes after the immediate need? You know? Where do you go? What do you do? So no one is thinking about five years time, ten years time. And it's those kinds of that mindset we need to adopt. Absolutely, I think that's really important. And like you said, having a five, ten year plan is really important because it gives hope to people living in these camps that there is a solution, there is a way out. Because unfortunately, there may not be an opportunity for some Syrians to go back to their homeland. Like you said earlier, when you mentioned that you did your masters and you met so many amazing people, and from that, the program that you're doing now grew and grew. Simple conversations on a day-to-day -day basis where people sh share the same passion, energy, and enthusiasm for a project and where that can take you. I think like you mentioned earlier, a lot of people over analyze things sometimes and think, oh, it could be too difficult for X, Y, and Z reason. And sometimes I think it's just get out and do it and give it a chance to flourish and give it a chance to work. Um, because if you had in your mind that this wouldn't work because the Middle East is a very difficult um, environment at the moment with what we're seeing in the last couple of years, your project probably would never even come off the ground and all of these people would have never been impacted by the work that you've done and people like you have done. So I think it's important just to give yourself a chance and believe that you can make an impact. Yeah. I'll give an example like right now, what's going on in Iraq with the missiles being launched from various different countries. Yes. The context is difficult, but when is the context not going to be difficult? The refugee camps at the end of the day that you're going there to support and work with, of course, yeah. So, it'll always be hard. Yes. There's never going to be a, a right time. Uh, and the needs are always going to be there. They're all going to, all, always going to need help. You know? yeah. And if anything, with all this happening at the moment, the need is greater. Yeah, Not less. You have to adopt, like, uh, I think absolutely. I mean, a lot of people have said to me at work and in other areas when I've told them that I'm going to some of these camps, I'm sure it's the same with you, especially with family, saying, is it safe to go and things like that. But at the end of the day, the perspective I take on it, it'll be interesting to hear your perspective is, sure, it's a difficult environment, but you have to keep your security in place because at the end of the day, if you're not safe, then you could potentially not be only harming yourself, but even more importantly, harming those people around you and the refugees that you want to help and you want, you may be doing indirectly harming them. So I think that's always important to bear in mind, but as long as you take sensible steps and you have the right framework in place to, to ensure that you are safe as possible, I think that's a, a good position to build off from. Because at the end of the day, what you don't want is to go over there thinking that you're going to support <coughs> Um, these communities and at the end of the day you're having a, a detrimental impact on them and, and their lifestyles and, and their security because that's the last thing that we'd want so I think as long as you've got a good basis to go from and your security is in place and everything else works out I think it's important to just take the leap yeah and you mentioned the sustainability aspect right yeah you want a sustainable approach to aid right? yes and if you want to be sustainable you have to be there to be sustainable yeah. so it's not about this trip it's many trips to come absolutely and the thing that i always like to remind myself when i when i go to the countries that i have is that there are many people out there actually I've stopped careers in this country, in the UK, in America, wherever, sorry, living comfortable lives and have gone out there and living in communities to help the most, the most underprivileged in, in, in our midst. And I think that's a really inspirational message for me that I need to be doing more. That I go for two weeks, I provide aid, I provide whatever, but at the end of the day that's not enough. There's always more to do and there's always more to achieve. Sure. 
and I need to be doing more and that kind of inspires me to do more, not less. And also, so I give a lot of talks to uh, engineers yes. at universities okay. that are looking for jobs and stuff. Yeah. And I say to them, really question the jobs that you're going to take, take on, you know. Because I think universities need to do better with advising students before they graduate on what, what schemes they're going to be part of, yeah. what, what uh, work they're going to be doing. And not just jump at the first opportunity that they get. Yeah. Especially as engineers, the impact that we have is huge. Yeah. You, know, you might go work for a missile company that's going to create the next best bomb. You know? It's defense, but every good bit of engineering that you're going to be doing is going to kill people at the end of the day. Mm. Um, so understanding that impact, and I think it's with the impact that you understand, then, they, then you can move forward. Right? Yeah. And I think that's really inspiring. No disrespect. No, no, of course not, no, no. Um, and, and I think it's really, really inspiring that you take the angle and you're able to give that advice to the future engineers because like you said it's not just about one engineer or a group of engineers um, very similar to the medical field it's about the next generation as well and the people to come after us we need to show them or help them give them advice on what we've learned and they may disagree with it, they may agree with it, and that's absolutely fine, but giving some of our feedback and our thoughts so they understand the, the decisions that they make and the potential with their skill set, what they can do in, in the world. Yeah. That's been a, an amazing experience. Yeah. To think that this is only like a year and a half old. I mean, yeah. Just the, the team is growing. And we're always looking for good people to come on board. So how can people find out how to get involved? Um, where can they look? What can yes. they do? So we're on all the social media platforms uh, as the Washing Machine Project. You can find me directly as well. I'd love to have a conversation. We're looking for all sorts of people, fundraisers, uh, engineers, Anthropologists, and and volunteers, right? Because to build the actual yeah. drums and the the device yeah. as well. Absolutely. So we um, we just built fifty, and they were our first ever fifty. So they almost killed us. Right? <laughs> we had seventy-five volunteers come from all over the country. Brilliant. Yeah. So from a range of backgrounds. Everywhere, everywhere. from directors all the way down to well, different. Yeah. I think we calculated like 2,000 hours or something. Time, yeah, yeah. And what's the ambition? So what's the ambition for the Washing Machine Project? You've touched a little bit about maybe setting up laundrettes that can help communities. But what is the overall ambition in the next 5-10 years? Where do you see this project going and where do you want to take it? So, to be honest, all I wanted to do was create a washing machine for Divya. Yeah, and you've done that. <laughs> so I actually saw her for the first time oh. uh, in two years. I saw her in December last month, and it was a surreal experience. I spoke to her about it. We were featuring a few news articles. Yes, yeah. Stuff, and I showed her. She was really appreciative, very embarrassed as well. Mm. That it's named after her? Yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure. But in terms of our long, long short-term goals, we're going to make more washing machines for the Iraq region, so four to five hundred more. And over what period of time over do the you... Over next couple of years. Okay. Um, we'll grow in different countries, in different refugee camps. So big need in, in Africa, in places like Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya. And Ghana. Ghana as well. Yeah. Then I want a washing machine in every country in the world because there's a need for it. 
at affordable price as well. $30. That's the next one. Um, and then why so far Washington? The problem's huge. Off the grid refrigerators. Yeah. Um, for example. So are you always that's in the back of your mind? Yeah. Um, yeah. You've, you know, you've, you, the sense that I get is that you don't rest on your laurels. You've, you've done exceptionally well and like you mentioned, only a year and a half. But you're already planning more projects in the pipeline and... Yeah. I know that like, we have made so many mistakes. Yeah. And we'll make so many mistakes. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. We learn from that. The team will grow and evolve, people will leave, people can evolve. And as long as we have fun and the most important thing is we have impact. Yes. And we help them with issues. So as long as we do that we keep it. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much now. Take care. Thank you. It was an absolute delight speaking with Navjot today. His passion and enthusiasm for this project really shone through and I'm really excited to see where this project goes and how many people's lives will be improved as a result. What really struck me through speaking to Navjot is how quickly his dream of providing this effective device materialised into a reality and it was only possible with the dedication of an army of volunteers that he spoke about so passionately. And it's further proof to us as a sector that volunteers are really the backbone of organisations and the value and energy they bring allows projects like these to succeed. Another point that I think needs particular attention is when Navjot spoke about the need of getting the beneficiaries involved at the earliest possible stage in the development of the project and to ensure that their feedback was encouraged at every step along the way. This is vital if we as organisations are going to develop projects, initiatives, programmes that are relevant to our audience to ensure it serves their needs. If you have any feedback or ideas that you would like covered by us on Charity Chat, please get in touch at info at charitychat.org.uk. Thank you very much for listening. And that just leaves me to thank our corporate sponsors. Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksamit for our website design. RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images on our website. And Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now.